Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Hello, this is Sarah Merrick with the Church Times book podcast. It's the first of a new monthly series. And I'm in conversation today with Susan Gray, who's one of our freelance contributors. And we're going to be talking about the book that she's chosen as this month's reading group's title. And this month's pick is a novel. It's called The Living Sea of Waking Dreams by the Australian writer Richard Flanagan. And some listeners will probably be familiar with another book Richard Flanagan wrote called The Narrow Road to the Deep North, because that won several awards, including the 2014 Booker Prize. So, Susan, could you start us off, please, just by telling us a little bit about the story of the living sea of waking dreams in a couple of sentences. Just set the scene for us. Oh, that would be my pleasure, Sarah. Uh, It's the story of three Tasmanian siblings who are caring for their mother, Francie, at the end of her life. The uh, the siblings, Anna, Terzo and Tommy's economic fortunes are so very different and they are such contrasting characters. But when we first meet them, it feels like we're meeting a friendship group that haven't been together for a long, long time, as if it's a reunion that's taking place from long, long ago. And I think this brings across the geographical distance they have as well. Anna lives in Sydney as an architect. Terzo lives in Melbourne as a wealth manager. And Tommy, who is the least economically successful of the siblings, lives in Hobart and cares for the mother. And... In a couple of sentences, what was it that you loved about this book so much? The first thing that I loved was that it was by the author of The Narrow Road to the Deep North, which I thought was just such a fantastic novel. It is my novel of the century so far. Uh, remind, some readers perhaps won't have read it. Give us, can you give us um, just a little bit of colour on what that book's about? Compared to The Living Sea, it's actually quite straightforward narrative with a prisoner of war story in the Far East and a contemporary love story involving the same person. What the novel brings forward is the absolute moral dilemmas of what happens when people have really nothing but their own reserves and their own moral compass. And it's just so vivid about the extremes of the human condition So I agree that's a very powerful novel. So you originally picked up this one in the light of having read and enjoyed The Narrow Road to the Deep North. And what was so special about this one? This one is, in some ways, I compare it, it's like a sugar spun basket. It is beautiful when you look at it as a whole. It's tricky to take apart, but I'm going to have a go. The great things about it were that um, the Portrayal of end-of-life care is just so incredibly true, um, or certainly rang very true for me. The depiction of the hospital and the language of end-of-life caring that is both kind of cheery, but also completely opaque. It contrasts very well the kind of prosaic everydayness. There's an hilarious scene in a restaurant that sets itself up to be sort of locally sourced and terribly rooted in the Tasmanian area. And Flanagan makes this point that, you know, actually it's the same as every other trendy restaurant all over the world. And, you know, there are are these very kind of telling points. 
And it also, it's betrayal of people who are very different and have to find a common cause. Um, I think it's also very well done. I think we'll pick up some of those themes in a bit more detail in a minute. But before we go any further, I think we need to talk about the start of the book. You liken the first few pages of the novel to crazy paving. That was your very evocative phrase. I thought that really um, explained it very well. But can you say a bit more about what readers can expect when they open this book? Hard work. (laughs) The beginning of the book is in 16 sections. It is very fragmented. It is close to stream of consciousness in places because you are inside all these disparate characters' heads. There is also the overarching theme of ecological disaster. And there's also the introduction of the magic realist theme. The opening sentence of the work is her hand. And it takes you pretty much quite a way through the novel to work out the significance of that. So Flanagan does set his scene Um, But he's also setting out a bargain with the reader saying, you're going to have to trust me to pull this off. And I imagine if if anybody is struggling, you would say, keep going. I would say keep going. Possibly one of the the lures that um, I think Flanagan puts in two lures at the beginning. One is the flashes of humour. And secondly, um, there are these wonderful descriptions of Tasmanian wildlife, um, mainly through the monologues and thoughts of Tommy. And so, yeah, there's enough, there's a kind of, enough of the jewellery is spread out to keep you going. But, um, yeah, weaving all those pieces together, I certainly found uh, tough. Let's talk about some of the themes there. Perhaps we should start with the climate catastrophe. Now, Richard Flanagan was writing this book during the catastrophic bushfires in Tasmania and more widely in Australia. I think he comes from Tasmania, doesn't he? He sort of knows the area very well. And I would say there's a very strong sense of place. And that seems to be something he does, because in the other book we've just talked about, you've mentioned the narrow road to the deep north. He he draws on his father's experience um, in as a prisoner of war in Burma. And here we are. I feel very much he's he's drawing on his experience of Tasmania, this this beautiful, beautiful part of the world that also also sort of feels like it's the sort of the edge of the world. It's, you know, it's the distant island that is of a distant of a distant country to us in our Eurocentric viewpoint at any rate. Tell me a bit more about what you thought about about the whole climate side of things and the nature themes. What what did you find in your in that? Um, there was certainly plenty of them. Um, possibly uh, um, for me, he certainly took it up to eleven um, with those themes. I mean, for Flanagan, you could see really strongly that the apocalypse is here. We're in it. There is not a chance to course correct you. It is something we are living through. And it frames the whole book, both in the talk about the polluted air and the haze that everyone is looking through. And I think at one point he likens the world to diseased lungs. Um, So there's very much a sort of link between biology and and climate change. But then it's also, um, you get it in really intensive snippets um, through the novel, mainly through the protagonist Anna's social media feed. Um, so you have lots of you know, burning buildings, people fleeing, bushfires, hideous images of insinuated koalas, and the idea that there's a kind of doomsday 
clock ticking while you're reading that as you read you know species are becoming extinct it's sort of it's all happening in real time and of course what is so ironic about the social media stuff is it something that Anna uses to retreat from the crisis that's facing her family that it's almost it's more comforting to kind of doom scroll through ecological disaster than um you talk to the people nearest to her and she's sort of hooked into social media while not having the conversations with her siblings, isn't she? There's an awful lot about not talking or talking in the wrong place or being in the wrong room, as it were. Yes, or not, or yes, or not, not being able to talk or feel it. Uh, she talks a lot about the language of love and feeling that almost if you say it, it ruins it. It's like there's a, there's a groping for language, a groping for ways to communicate and somehow... The easiest way seems to be to retreat back into these kind of symbols and flashes of social media. And alongside this destruction, this this kind of, you know, dying natural world, which is very, very poignant and disastrous and, and sort of frightening at one level, you've got the refusal to die, in a sense, of their mother. Um, that whole end-of-life care thing I found very, very poignant. I think particularly in the context we're, we're living in now, you know, with the pandemic, there's been this great, this great striving to keep people alive, to keep people safe, to prolong their life, you know, not to let anybody who's remotely vulnerable, you know, suffer from the virus, which is very understandable. But I think one of the things that he does so well is ask very profoundly the question, why are we keeping people alive and at what cost? And this poor woman in the bed, you know, has procedure after procedure after procedure. I, I mean, I don't know what you felt reading that, but I found that very realistic, but sort of excruciating as well. Yes, it brought in the whole dilemma of end of life care, that if you're caring for someone, of course, you want your loved one to live. And yet, guess what is the price? And Flanagan brings across so well that, you know, one procedure will lead to another procedure, will lead to another procedure. And I think he is portraying it as fool's gold, mm. um, an inability to accept reality. And yet we also know that the, the clinging to life is such a strong instinct. I wonder, as you're saying, that our, in some cases, our medical technology has basically outrun our instincts and that the, the, sort of, the, the sort of clock has got busted or the compass has got busted and we just don't know how to deal with these changes. Yeah. I think it certainly sort of reframed the sort of the end of life argument because he, he puts it, or he puts the words into Anna's mouth, but I think it's probably his words, that we can't just say that the postponement of death is life. That there has to be there has to be something more to it, and you've got this very vivid um, sense of the pulling in the different directions. So you've got one brother who's much more comfortable about you know letting her go, and then the two who aren't, and you've got the doctors saying, well, you know, this might happen, and then this and that other, and they will be constantly very encouraging that she's making good progress when we, the reader, can see that she clearly, clearly isn't. And that's a very, I think that's something that, that readers will, will empathise with a lot, that it's really difficult. Who makes this decision in any of this situation? You know, if she's unable to make the decision for herself, you've got these sort of siblings, you've got their sort of triangular relationship as they sort of pull in different directions, making these, these decisions about, about their mother's life. I think it's very real. It's a dilemma that lots of people will, will sympathise with. Yes, and uh, Flanagan makes 
Tommy, who does the majority of the mother's caring, the one who wants you know, her life to end naturally. And it's Anna and Terzo who are the most remote and the most successful and the most driven siblings who wanted to continue at any price, including her own wishes. And, and they're used to, I think part of their success, they're used to fixing things, aren't they? Used to fixing things, used to having their own way, not wanting to jump too far ahead to the end. But it seems, it seems that the novel wants to get forward the idea that sort of the meek inherit the earth, or if they don't inherit the earth, they do inherit some earthly moral authority. How realistic that is, um, is also, I think, a question the novel throws up. And it's interesting that Flanagan doesn't actually allow that until right at the end. So when Tommy's agency would have perhaps been effective when the plans were being made for the mother's care, it doesn't seem to be there. But it almost it comes in as a kind of postscript. So I think maybe that fits in with the novel's themes about lost chances. Yes, I think that's that's very true, and and you've touched on on the sort of the meek inheriting the earth, and I think that takes us neatly onto the sort of spiritual aspects of the book. So she is uh, the mother is is very much a Catholic. Um, how do you see how do you see the role of faith in this book? The role of faith is quite disturbing in the book because it's portrayed as something that people did in the past. So it's portrayed as something that there's still a sort of a residue of. But in terms of the siblings, Catholicism is shown as very negative. These sexual abuse scandals that have been raging in Australia, they're made very central to the novel and shown to have sort of really scarred the three brothers in the family, although we only meet two that are living. So it's not it's not presented favourably. And yet and yet, the most symbolic cruelty that the family, the siblings do to their mother, is to refuse her the last rites. So I I think there's a lot of conflict about Catholicism in the novel. And the other thing that's interesting is it's treated much more sympathetically when it wa- when it sort of waves towards superstition or dreams or prophecy or the sort of the portal to magic realism, then it's given a much more gentle treatment. And it is still the only structure in the novel that deals with death. It still feels like for all its criticisms, for all the rejection, for all the putting it in the past, um, for the sins of the past, when it comes to dealing with present day death, that is the form it's put into. And it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, one way of reading it would be that it's because those siblings have have lost, you know, they've no longer got that faith in any active way, that they just, they they just don't know how to handle death, do they? They've sort of lost their bearings somehow. And if, if, if only they could, if they had a more real faith or a more kind of happy experience of faith, I sense there'd be, well, there wouldn't be a book, you know, but, but there would be much more, much greater ease. They would know how, they'd have a language in which perhaps to let go of their mother. Yeah, they could have a shared language with their mother as she had with her mother, the tiger. But then um, it's not just faith that is displaced at least two of the siblings from their mother. There's also economic success. And I suppose it's 
a question for all religions. How do you minister to people when it's not about addressing their lack of earthly comfort? They've got tons of that. How do you minister to people when they're affluent and comfortable but still seeking something else? Mm, Absolutely, yeah. You've mentioned very fleetingly the magic realism aspects of it. Let's talk a bit about that because that's that is a bit weird, isn't it? <laughs> yes, when I saw sort of magic realism, I thought, oh no. <laughs> to be completely honest, it's not it's not my favourite literary device. And it's obviously symbolically linked to extinction and you know, climate change and things disappearing. Um, I hope this doesn't spoil the novel for anyone, but the protagonist starts noticing parts of her body missing and then missing body parts kind of towards the end of the novel start spreading to be a social media phenomenon and of course the obvious you know a metaphor so heavy that you wouldn't want to drop it on your foot is that you know well missing body parts missing animal species you know, extinction of the body extinction of the planet i could yes i as i say going back right to the beginning when i talked about the novel being a sugar spun basket it works in the context of a whole if you start pulling it out and saying, is this a particularly potent way to talk about these issues? I mightn't be the first in the queue to run up and say yes. Yeah, yes, I, I think I'd agree with you there. It's it it's sort of, and again, one of the very odd things about it, again, I don't think it's, it spoils it, is when these, you know, she starts with losing fingers, when things start, go missing, nobody mentions it. And I guess again, you know, the message there is, you know, this enormous destruction out there, but we we just don't we just don't talk about it because it's just it's just uncomfortable or something. Yes, and the only person there's only certain people who can see that this is going on for her, and so then we get onto the whole sort of we get onto the sort of slightly superstitious thing of the gift of sight and prophecy and things like that, and it feels to me that that becomes the container for Catholicism, that it can't be talked about in a strictly religious way. So it's uh, it's broadened out to be spiritual stroke supernatural stroke magic realism. And that's the way that Flanagan can comfortably incorporate it in the novel. The way we've talked about it so far has been all sort of doom and gloom, you know, death, destruction, disappearing. And certainly um, my feeling is, you know, these are very big and very pressing and very contemporary questions. But somehow, it's not a gloomy read, is it? It's Weirdly, it's not depressing. I'm, what were your feelings as you finished it? Uh, I was in admiration of the achievement of it, because yes, it has taken these very gloomy topics, but it makes you stay with them. One one of the things I was really in admiration of was Flanagan's handling of time, that he has this fantastic ability to keep you as the reader rooted in the present day and then take you sometimes through the lives of the characters sometimes through other devices on these fabulous journeys through the generations and then plop you are you do come back to the present with bump but it's usually with a bump of insight as a literary ride as a kind of as a kind of mental exercise i think it is a fabulous novel i think it's treatment of end of life is also incredible because it just if you've experienced not your life ending obviously but if you've experienced care it just rings so true the um, the sort of the hope and the plateauing the hope and the plateauing the introduction of different procedures different pieces of equipment you know this will be the thing 
it'll get you back to where you want to. But of course, there's no getting back. And I think, I think his handling of that is is really, really good. And it's a picture of contemporary Australia and its wildlife. I mean, it's a real advert for Tasmanian tourism, which is possibly the last thing they want. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It gives this really vivid picture of Tasmania. It's very sort of bright colours, aren't, yeah. aren't there, that you... Bright yeah. and vivid and full of wildlife. Yeah. And I don't know what you think, Sarah, but... Um, I was wondering, is Tasmania a sort of lost Eden? I think there's a real element of that. Um, uh, yeah, that real sense. And as I say, there's somehow there's this very sort of, in my mind, um, this idea of sort of this sort of place, you know, floating. It's, 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 it's odd. I don't know if you've been to Tasmania, but it, there is a sense it's quite different from mainland Australia. And it's sort of almost forgotten. It's a sort of add-on, or that could be how it feels. Of course, that's not how it feels to the people whose home it is. Um, but it's very easy to sort of think of it like that and for it to have a sort of separate um, culture, really, the way islands can do. But yes, it's and it's this sort of lost innocence and, and this place of lush beauty, and that comes across very well. I also thought I thought the title was is very, very beautiful, The Living Sea of Waking Dreams. I mean, it really sort of sums up this sort of um, floating, nebulous, strange sense of flux that perhaps people have towards the end of their life. And also this very odd sense of dislocation of time as people wait for somebody to die, because as well as all the things about it being difficult. It's also can be very boring and very disorientating. I was talking to somebody last night who said, you know, his mother took five days to die in hospital, which is nothing compared to Francie, but but that actually it was really hard work. And I think that's quite honest, you know, to say that, that, you know, you're sort of you're in your life is in suspension. And these siblings, the ones who live in mainland Australia, you know, they come more and more often. And, and yet it's never enough, is it? And a lot of it is is the book is about what is enough. What it, you know, it is never enough. The time that you spend, um, there will always be these um, these sort of regrets and and this great sense of loss. So, who has stayed with you? Which are the characters you you thought about after you'd finished the book? Did anybody live with you? Tommy, the put upon sibling, I liked. Um, I I he was a great example of the way Flanagan can use little touches to say so much. The other siblings look down on him and don't really want to visit his house because he has um, pine furniture with clear lacquer. And we all know what that furniture looks like. I thought that positioning of him was fantastic. His incredible kindness to his son, who has um, really profound mental health difficulties. That's another great strength of the book, which again, on the surface, could sound very gloomy. It portrays people struggling with their mental health in a really compassionate and sensitive way. And that, again, if you've had any dealings with people with serious mental health issues, it just struck so true. I think because Flanagan is just such an incredible writer, these kind of pots of gold that other writers would have made a whole novel about, he can just touch on and move on. I did have some issues with the portrayal of Anna in that she is very, comes from a modest background, becomes incredibly successful, is raising a child on her own, and yet she is presented as this sort of 
terribly empty person, as if it's all, you know, her life has all been in vain. And I did feel that was a bit of a cliche. I thought we were sort of, you know, getting back to sort of Mildred Pierce or something. That is it, you know, can a midlife woman in fiction really have no happiness whatsoever? Mm-hmm. So that was, I mean, so Anna stayed with me as much for what I struggled with in her portrayal in the book for as much as what what I liked. The character of Terzo is interesting in that he almost seems a cipher, a kind of a Gordon Gecko style character, almost inhuman, almost a robot. And yet there must be something redeeming in him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's the search the search for the redemptive element of Terzo. I think st- um, stayed with me, and of course, yeah, that did give me an enormous longing to go to Australia mm. and especially Tasmania, and I guess to appreciate the world around us because, touch wood, we are not living in a terrible haze of smoky fog at the moment. You know, Britain is not surrounded by bushfires. I mean, we could be. The novel is, to use that terrible cliche, the novel is a wake-up call about environmental issues. And it's a wake-up call that comes possibly in a way that you didn't expect it, but it's still very effective. Mm-hmm. And it did seem to me very, very contemporary. I'm assuming he probably wrote most of it before the pandemic, and yet it felt very much a book for now um, to me. You know, some of the things it was exploring, we've all we've all had to look at our lives in a, in a sort of different way since then. Um, and I thought that was very powerful. We've been talking about Richard Flanagan's book, The Living Sea of Waking Dreams, which is published by Vintage. And you can read Susan's introductory essay and find some questions for discussion in the Church Times in May. Now, before you go, Susan, we've each chosen another book that we'd like to recommend um, to listeners. Would you like to tell me what you've chosen and why? Yes, I'm going to be really cheeky, Sarah, and try and get two for the price of one That's here. fine. Go ahead. I would like to recommend Tom de Freston's Wreck, um, which is a contemporary painter's look at his relationship um, with Jericho's The Raft of the Medusa. And as a companion piece to that, I would like to throw in Celia Paul's Letters to Gwen John. And why I've chosen them is they're both beautifully written pieces by contemporary artists. They both talk about the paintings they have in their studio, or you know, the sort of pieces that mean so much to them, almost in a sort of talismanic way. Um, for De Freston, it is Jericho's The Raft of the, Raft of the Medusa. And for Celia Paul, it is Gwen John's self-portrait, which Celia Paul feels is connected to her own work, where she portrays herself at the same age. And I just found them just moving works about how art is created, how we are connected to the past, and how we can take the stories of the past and reshape them for our own times again and again and again. It's sort of... um, you know, it's a huge tick for the beauty and uplift of great art. So that's interesting. That's talking about about art rather than the natural world. That's quite a contrast um, to the book we've just been discussing. Um, so that's that's very interesting. Thank you. And a book I would like to recommend is um, Regrets of the Dying, which is written by Georgina Skull. And she, there's a subtitle, Stories and Wisdom that Remind Us How to Live. 
And there's an interesting uh, story behind the book, which is that this woman, Georgina Skull, had a very, very dramatic episode a decade ago where she very, very nearly died. Um, she was suffered from an ectopic pregnancy and she was told afterwards she was five minutes away from, from death and, and doctors fortunately saved her life. And we've talked about a wake-up call as far as the uh, climate is concerned. But for Georgina Skull, it was a, a real wake-up call about her priorities, how she was spending her life and what she might regret. And so she set out to interview a whole lot of people about coming towards the end of their life, some of them older, some people, you know, very sadly, very young with life-limiting illnesses, and ask them what what they regretted as they came to the ends of their lives. And it was it was beautifully done. It was done with very great compassion. Each of the stories was interesting, and very often I wanted to know more. And in many, many ways, there wasn't anything very surprising. People said, you know, I wish I'd spent more time with my family or less time chasing a career. Some of them were sort of sadder things like, you know, I wish I hadn't stayed in that relationship for so long. You know, it didn't do me good and I knew it at the time, but somehow I wasn't brave enough to, to leave. Some were dramatic. There was a, um, an elderly lady who had actually witnessed a murder when she was a child, but hadn't quite been able to process what it was, but felt absolutely terrible decades later that she'd never gone to the police. Um, and the writer says to her, you know, how could you have known what you saw? Um, you know, it was a child's eye view of something that she didn't quite process until much, much later. And she went to her mother and said, oh, I think, you know, this was this was wrong. And, and her mother wouldn't let her take it any further because she wanted to be a good neighbour, which was sort of bizarre. That's what I mean about there being whole extra stories in there. But it's whole interesting. There's, there's one of the interviewees, he says he has no regrets. And he doesn't say that from a place of particular kind of arrogance or insensitivity, but because he feels he's tried to deal with stuff as he's gone along and he's accepted his humanity and his, you know, that he will have made mistakes, but wherever he's known about them, he's tried to resolve them and apologise for them. And and so I think it's very interesting. It's, you know, she has sort of 10 lessons at the end, which are sort of fairly random things like, you know, make good choices and, you know, spend time with people you love. But some very simple things as well, like appreciate the everyday, which you, you've, you've mentioned earlier. And it's just interesting in terms of making you pause and think, I wonder, I wonder what, you know, what I would do in that circumstance. So that is um, just out now, Regrets of the Dying by Georgina Skull. It's published by Welbeck Publishing. Um, it's still in, in hardback, so that's one to look out for. Can I just ask you a question about that, Sarah? Um, does Skull herself course correct, having had this profound experience? What does she alter about her own life? She makes a big decision, and the main decision that she talks about is that she leaves a marriage um, and and stays. She has quite a young child, but she and her partner co-parent apparently happily. But it took great courage to do this, um, she says, and that was that was the big change for her, which is just really interesting. That you know, so some of the things were about making some of those difficult choices, and some were just about you know more about kind of changing your priorities um, and so on. But no, I think it's well worth a read. As I say, approached with with very great compassion. She doesn't judge people for their decisions, um, really, but and their regrets. She tries to be understanding, and I think she she does a very good job of getting to the heart of what it is that that people um, people regret. And you know, I love the fact that the subtitle is is all about reminding us how to live. Um, so yeah, one to look out for. 
Thank you, Susan. We're coming to the end. Thank you for your time today. It's always a great pleasure for me to talk about books and reading. Thank you for your suggestion of The Living Sea of Waking Dreams and your other recommendations. And thank you to our listeners and goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more.